Welcome to Get Psyched, the thought-provoking podcast brought to you by PsychSign. I'm Arazu, your host, and in this episode, we will embark on an exhilarating journey delving into the applications of artificial intelligence in healthcare. AI, or artificial intelligence, has rapidly become a popular topic of discussion across all fields of medicine, but let's take a step back and define, what is AI? At its core, AI is a branch of computer science that aims to create computer systems capable of simulating human cognition, including problem-solving, natural language comprehension, and pattern recognition. AI's potential offers promising advancements in a variety of industries, including healthcare. This episode will be packed with an insightful discussion on how AI is revolutionizing patient care and transforming medical practices. However, as we shift towards incorporating AI into medicine, we must remain mindful of the associated ethical and social concerns including, but not limited to, data privacy, potential algorithmic bias, and striking the right balance between human expertise and machine-assisted decision-making. By exploring both the promises and the perils, we aim to equip you with a comprehensive understanding of AI's potential role in healthcare. Joining me today is Dr. Negam Shah, the Chief Data Scientist for Stanford Healthcare and a distinguished professor of medicine specializing in biomedical informatics and data science. Together, we will discuss real-world examples of AI's transformative impact in healthcare and touch upon the exciting possibilities it holds for psychiatry. Stay tuned for a fascinating discussion on the complexities and benefits of using AI. Welcome back to Get Psyched, a Psych Sign podcast. I'm Arazu, your host. Today I'm joined by Dr. Negam Shah. Dr. Shah is a professor of medicine at Stanford University and the chief data scientist for Stanford Healthcare. His research group analyzes multiple types of health data to answer clinical questions, generate insights, and build predictive models for the learning health system. At Stanford Healthcare, he leads artificial intelligence and data science efforts for advancing the scientific understanding of disease improving the practice of clinical medicine, and orchestrating the delivery of healthcare. Dr. Shaw is an inventor on eight patents and patent applications, has authored over 200 scientific publications, and has co-founded three companies. Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for being here today and lending your expertise to help us understand what's going on in the world of artificial intelligence. Happy to be here. It's always fun to interact with the next generation of leaders. Yes, I'm excited to kind of talk to someone who's been in this field and in this industry for so long and, and learn from your experiences and, and kind of see what your idea is of what's, what's up and coming, because it feels like every day there's something new in this field. Um, why don't we go ahead and start with, uh, why don't you go ahead and let us know a little bit more about your background in the fields of data science and medicine? Sure. So I have a, a quite of an unusual background. Uh, when I started out uh, in this field, there weren't any sort of that many structured programs. So I finished my medical school uh, in India, 
and joined a you know regular PhD in molecular medicine, studying you know muscle physiology and HIV and you know the, the kind of thing that most clinicians and under, understand after their MD training. And then at that time was when uh, the Human Genome Project sort of hit the mainstream press, and there was this excitement about using computation to better understand biology. And my own interest was more medicine than biology. And uh, over the time of my thesis work and so on, people introduced me to this group of doctors who are medical informatics uh, experts. And apparently the field as a small community has existed since the 1980s. And uh, that's how I found uh, my current home at uh, Stanford uh, in medical informatics. And now it's called biomedical informatics. Um, and I came here as a postdoc in 2005 and uh, never left. So in some sense, it's short. In some sense, it's uh, it's winding. <laughs> yeah, that, that's such an interesting journey. I feel like just one turn took you from, you know, being a medical student, finishing medical school um, to now this field of biomedical informatics. Um, and now that we see it kind of transforming into something larger than life almost. Um, what initially sparked your interest in the intersection of biomedical informatics and now artificial intelligence and in healthcare? So believe it or not, artificial intelligence in medicine and by association with healthcare has been studied in the U.S. since the 70s. And for the uh, audience uh, here, I would uh, actually point you to a very interesting paper by Dr. Alvan Feinstein, which came out in 1972 about estimating prognosis with a conversational mode computer program. Now, I didn't find the paper you know, until recently, like, well, about 10 years ago, 2013 is when I found it. But it's fascinating to see that there have always been doctors who have thought about using computers to either diagnose patients better, to estimate prognosis better, or to come up with better treatment plans based on what happened to other similar patients. And historically, either their computers were not that powerful or their patient data banks were not that big or the statistical methods were not, uh, uh, not good enough or mature enough. I think now is when the convergence of all three things is happening. Mm -hmm. We have enough data in electronic form right. on millions of patients. Mm -hmm. We have computers that are uh, quite powerful. Inference methods have matured amazingly well. You know, the Nobel Prize for inference uh, went uh, for a novel method recently. Um, and then most important, last but not least, is we have these three ingredients and also have incentive. We have pressure to do better in medicine, both in terms of improving quality and reducing cost. And so that's the reason I believe that uh, there's a lot of excitement that when things are possible and there's pressure to do them, uh, uh, things start moving. Absolutely. That was so well said. I feel like um, understanding that trifecta that you kind of explained, the trifecta of, you know, not only having enough computing power, but also having access to patient data and now having and also the research methods being advanced enough to do this kind of work. And now having that fourth layer, which is the incentive to, to actually, you know, do this work and find, you know, strategies that work. I think that kind of explains why we've come to this point in time. Um, 
And, you know, it's exciting, I will say. I mean, this is kind of, this is the first topic I wanted to talk about on the podcast because especially over the last few months, I think we've seen in um, just, you know, mainstream media, a lot of discussion about artificial intelligence. And, you know, being being a medical student, my mind automatically thinks about how this can play a role in healthcare. Um, so where and how has artificial intelligence already been incorporated into healthcare today? That's a great question. Uh, the media would like you to believe that, uh, you know, AI is everywhere in healthcare. Um, the truth is a little bit different and is actually dependent on what you admit as comprising artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So let's start with a simple example. A lot of people might agree that if you allow an algorithm to repeatedly perform a task in the stead of a human being, that constitutes artificial intelligence. By that token, we've already had AI for a very long time. For example, the cell sorter, where you put in a little vial of blood and it tells you the white blood count uh, and the differential count, is AI for, by that definition. Uh, when I went to med school, we would actually make a blood smear and count manually <laughs> of eosinophils and neutrophils and, uh, and lymphocytes. Uh, you know, not very accurate very tedious and super annoying. Uh, and now nobody does that. And it's a machine and an algorithm that does it for you. So if you say that's AI, well, then AI has been here for like a good 20 years now or even longer. Uh, if you insist that AI is something that is interactive and sort of responds to your commands, well, then we probably don't have it in any form or fashion. The reality is probably somewhere in between. There's a lot of places where algorithms have been used to automate tedious tasks. Mm -hmm. The cell sorter being one example. And the one that there's a lot in the media right now is uh, the notion of using AI to transcribe physician-patient encounters and reduce the tedium and to document everything, uh, you know, either later at night or in the evenings or, or whatnot. And so I, I would suggest that the readers make a distinction between the use of algorithms on data mm -hmm. for the purpose of administrative tasks and separately for the purpose of medical or clinical decision-making. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see and there already is adoption of AI for administrative tasks such as automated documentation, responding to patient messages, uh, very soon, I would hope, uh, to explain you know, your insurance benefits um, in automated billing, prior authorization, and things like that. Like stuff nobody wants to do, but kind of needs to be done. Yeah. The use of AI for clinical uses, I think, has a little bit of a checkered history, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And the one that I will point people to is the algorithm to read a retinal image uh, for diabetic retinopathy or other such complications built by a company called IDXR or IDX, I don't mm -hmm. know the exact name. Um, uh, Michael Abramoff, a professor at University of Iowa, um, an ophthalmologist, invented it. And that is the only thing that I know of 
where an algorithm can autonomously read a patient's retinal scan and even bill for it. <laughs> That's the only one that is paid for in the United States. Everything else is a little bit of hype. Hmm. Everything else, there's like 500 or so algorithms that are FDA approved. Uh-huh. Argue they're all AIs of some sort, like you know, segmenting an image, reading an MRI, reading an X-ray. They are yeah. all not autonomous. They're assistive to the radiologist. Yeah. And they cannot operate independently, and they mm-hmm. can't bill for rendering service to you. Only this one thing can render service and charge you for it. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that because I think it's important for everyone to understand first of all for defining the terms, you know, what is AI and what are we going to define it as? Is it simply an algorithm applied to a set of data points like you explained or does it have that autonomous uh, variable where it can go ahead and make clinical decisions? Can it bill for clinical uh, testing or, you know, various things? So I think it was very important that you highlighted that. Um, and twofold, very important that now we're able to kind of see beyond the hype, like you said, of that we see in the mainstream media and understand that so far kind of what we see is just bits and pieces of of AI, but not necessarily something that, aside from the one example you highlighted, something that can work autonomously, like you described. Um, so that's that's very interesting um, that, you know, there's maybe one legitimate example in practice today. Um, that's very interesting. Um, so as far as, you know, this being where we are now, where do you see the most potential for impacts in the field of medicine um, in the next, you know, in the forthcoming future? Yeah, so I tend to make a distinction between medicine and healthcare. Mm-hmm. And the reason for this is quite simple. Like medicine is still, like it or not, a little bit of an art and a science. Mm-hmm. And it, it does require two parties to the mix, the patient and the provider, a nurse, uh, a nurse practitioner or a doctor of some, uh, some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and medicine's purpose is to heal. Whereas healthcare is a business. Mm-hmm. And I would wager that the adoption of artificial intelligence in healthcare is what we're going to see in the immediate future. And for the first time as patients uh, and and members of that ecosystem, we can expect something that is remotely similar to customer service. Okay. Healthcare is notoriously bad at customer service, like supremely bad. Um, And so we will start seeing interactions where algorithms, you know, take basic history the night before on a voice activated device or on your phone or what have you so that you don't have to check in 20 minutes prior for your appointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might start sending you reminders for chronic disease management so that you don't have to maintain tedious logs of such thing of uh, you know what what need you need to get done. We might start seeing variables on people that guide them through their physiotherapy sessions 
uh, in a remote setting so you don't have to take time out in the middle of the day or towards the start or end of the day. So I think all of the things that you could park under the business practices of medical care, otherwise the shorthand for that being healthcare, we're going to see a lot of support by algorithms and automation in some form or fashion. Now, it does is very tempting to say algorithms are going to help us treat patients better and AI is going to revolutionize, you know, this care and that care and so on. Mm -hmm. I think that is a little bit overhyped. And I say that with very concrete evidence. So when I was at, you know, at at an early stage in my career, just finishing med school, there was a New York Times headline that did promise that when the Human Genome Project was done, cancer would be cured in the next 10 years. That date came and went 13 years ago. And so I would have a little bit of a skepticism on claims where AI is revolutionizing medicine. AI revolutionizing healthcare and making it affordable, better, faster, cheaper, to use a business cliche, mm-hmm. uh, not waste a lot of time and effort, You know, have better logistics planning, better yeah. staffing, OR scheduling, balancing patient load across physician panels so one person doesn't end up with a lot of complex cases. All of that, I think, is where we're going to see the immediate gains of AI. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's so important that you're able to kind of draw on your experience from the past, referring back to the Human Genome Project and the pro- the promises that were made then, right? Um, and not being able to necessarily deliver on those promises. I think that today now, looking on the new frontier of AI, it's important to have a healthy dose of skepticism when looking at the future of AI. Um, so I appreciate that, you know, kind of breaking it down for us, like, where are the poten- where is the potential and there is real potential, like you explained, um, versus where is more so um, just, you know, fanciness and like frills and and not and hype um so i appreciate you breaking that down and furthermore breaking down the difference between medicine and healthcare because i completely agree medicine being an interpersonal endeavor um versus healthcare being more of a business model um especially in this country uh where you have so many beneficiaries and 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 um and to you know interested parties um in this industry um it's important to keep in mind like where the benefit is actually going um so you pointed out some of those benefits being mainly administrative tasks uh stuff people no one wants to take care of um oversight making sure patients take their meds um logging logging information for patients um and i think that I agree with you. It does look like there's potential for that to make healthcare um, more efficient in terms of time and cost and um, all of that. And so that's, I think that's a, a good thing, objectively. Um, so but there's, I, I, there's one, one more thought worth sharing, uh, especially yeah. with people just sort of finishing up med school. Uh, there's the notion of using technology for efficiency gain. And then there's a notion of using technology for productivity gain. And people often confuse the two. So right now we're already at a stage where an outpatient physician visit is like seven to 10 minutes. 
-hmm. productivity gain would require that it goes down further. Because productivity is amount of work done per unit time. And if a physician is producing, you know, 15 outpatient visits a day in order for having productivity gain, you'd have to produce 20. (laughs) Uh, Whereas efficiency gain is about not spending the two hours that you spend writing documentation and being done in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to to be crystal clear that are we chasing productivity gains or are we chasing efficiency gains? Uh, I think efficiency gains are the urgent need, given that we have a physician workforce that's been essentially battered for quite a while uh, by a pandemic and now with increasing demand and pressures of different kinds. Right. Uh, Productivity gains will come later. Yeah, and I think it's important that you brought up, you know, the current state that we're in in terms of, you know, the people involved, like physicians, practitioners, nurse practitioners, um, anyone involved in actually delivering healthcare, the difference between efficiency versus productivity, productivity, like, I think that using the technology to our advantage to improve, not take shortcuts, but to cut out time that could be spent, I guess, with more face time with patients, as opposed to like you described productivity gains, where it means actually just cutting down time that you spend with patients to just increase turnover of patients through the door. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think we would benefit more from the efficiency gains. Um, but again, I mean, once you kind of introduce a tool or a technology into this world and, um, you know, it, it kind of takes on a life of its own. And I feel like in terms of, especially in an industry like healthcare, where there is, you know, it's a multi, multi-billion dollar industry. It'll be interesting just to see like where those, wh- how it plays out in terms of maybe we will, maybe this will kind of backfire on us a little bit. Um, although maybe that's a more pessimistic view of things. But I, I would say that, you know, it's, <laughs> it's up to the physician community to make sure it doesn't uh, uh-huh. backfire. And to proactively shape the usage of these things so that first they make the life of the providers better so that there is a potential to then chase productivity gains. Right. We can't afford to just get trapped into standard industrial thinking. Mm -hmm. Like medicine is not something you put on a a patient is not something you put on a conveyor belt and everybody turns a screw. I mean, that's not how it works. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like. Exactly. In a field like medicine, more so than maybe other industries, there is a need for constant innovation, not only in the, you know, economic sense of things, but in the sense of, you know, these are patients, these are people's lives and and livelihoods at stake and not necessarily just profit. Um, So it is an interesting conversation that we had about, you know, the ethics of all of this, I believe. Um, But Kind of shifting gears, because I want to hear your thoughts a little bit more on um, our side of medicine, which is psychiatry. (laughs) Uh, What are your thoughts on the potential impacts of AI, specifically on the field of psychiatry? So there are sort of two categories of thoughts. One is uh, the science of psychiatry. So Mm -hmm. we've been talking about medicine and healthcare, and there's sort of this third piece, which is like... uh, advancing the fundamental understanding of disease. Mm -hmm. 
And I think the use of algorithms, sensors, and applications of artificial intelligence on them will will make psychiatry a little bit more quantitative. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm using psychiatry a bit loosely. I'm including psych, psychology with it. Uh, so, for example, there's a joint work done with uh, with Adam Miner, uh, who is a faculty member in our psychiatry department here, but he's a psychologist. We looked at you know audio recordings of psychotherapy sessions to ident to automatically then transcribe them at scale. Just you know convert the speech to text, and then you can and you can then figure out the sentiment and other things such as interleaving of conversation and characteristics of good psychotherapy, so to speak. It has so far not been possible to do that at scale because it's a very it used to be a very manual process of analyzing a psychotherapy session. Now imagine if the field gets to a stage where it is standard of care that every psychotherapy session gets recorded, gets transcribed, and the transcriptions get analyzed in de-identified form Mm -hmm. to provide continuous feedback to learners and to practitioners about what are good tactics that work for certain kinds of patients. Now, you could think of that as computational psychology, for example. Um, you know, similar things could come in uh, proper psychiatry as well. Like, you know, diseases like schizophrenia, not quite well understood. There's multiple subtypes. Treatment remains a little bit scattershot. You know, maybe we'd be able to analyze, say, a million people with that condition and truly understand you know, maybe there's four subtypes of it. Like, I don't know how many there are. Uh, maybe we can build predictors for people with certain kinds of presentations have a uh, uh, higher chance to respond to certain kinds of treatments. Yeah. So I think it can elevate psychiatry more from an art towards being a science, like I would say, let's say where cardiology is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I can definitely see where it would definitely make it a more quantify, uh, like you said, a more quantifiable, quantitative field and, and where the benefits in that are. Because like you said, if in theory, we were able to analyze every psychotherapy session and transcribe it and then run it through an algorithm to to provide continuous feedback on how to improve or how to get the cert- the outcomes that we want um, to optimize, you know, psychotherapy or or in a different sense, optimizing like medication or treatment protocol or whatever have you, um, having it be more of a, a science than an art. I, I think that that in that sense, it's very exciting because it allows us to be a little bit more rigorous and allows us to perhaps see the growth that we want to see in the field um, and and maybe have you know, um, see the recovery that we want to see in our patients a little bit more in a more optimized way. Um, but, but then it begs the question of like patient privacy and, um, you know, just patient rights and all of, all of that, because psychiatry tends to be a field of very, very heavily dependent on the physician patient relationship. And so if you introduce the third party, if you introduce, you know, with that third party being technology or AI or however you want to define it, 
you know, it does beg the question of, you know, is this ethically sound? Mm -hmm. So I make a strong distinction between privacy and other ethical concern. Mm -hmm. So definitely this kind of work has to be done ensuring privacy. Mm -hmm. But on the ethical front, I would actually propose a counter argument, and this is inspired by Dr. Ruth Faden at Johns Hopkins, is that if I want to benefit from the collective learning from other people's data, mm -hmm. is it not my duty to share my own? That's an interesting proposition. <laughs> I mean, everybody wants to, if you ask doctors, even patients, not physicians, mm -hmm. patients, that would you want your treatment to be informed by the anonymized records of other millions of patients like you? Mm -hmm. They always say yes. Nobody says, you know, don't look at past experience and just treat me as, you know, the first person ever. Right, right. Okay, so now if, if everybody wants to be informed by the collective experience of others, do you not have the right or do you not have the duty right. to share your own? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a it's like a paradox. It's definitely a paradox. It's like you can't have optimal medicine without being able to refer to other patients' data, right? I mean, that's how you build medicine. Everybody wants personalized medicine. Right. But if nobody shares their data, how can you get personalized medicine? Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a contrarian position. Yes. Uh, but I think if we really want to benefit from AI and from data and, and all of that and from mm -hmm. the treatment experiences of others, we have to figure out a way to do this in a manner that protects privacy. Yeah. But instead of just sharing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is definitely a way to ensure that, you know, um, something you mentioned, obviously de-identifying information, de-identifying conversations and um, patient data is one way to go about it. Um, but I do think that there's a growing sense of mistrust in data, sh you know, data sharing. And so um, it's just something that immediately comes to mind. Because, yeah, again, like you said, it is a paradox. You can't have the benefits of personalized medicine without the willingness to then share your your, your data. Um, but as far as patient trust, do you think that, you know, specific to the physician-patient relationship, do you think that introducing that third party or, so to speak, will strengthen that relationship, damage the relationship, or have a, you know, have no effect? That is actually one of the issues that I'm not an expert on to comment. Uh, uh, there, I have a colleague, Professor Danton Carr, who we brainstorm about this. And uh, yes, there is this notion that now if you have a third party in the mix, the fiduciary relationship could change. Mm -hmm. um, in what way? Hard to say. But if we take the stance that we do not want technology as or AI being a third party in the mix, we kind of lock ourselves out of the ability to scale and learn from all the data that are being collected. 
So it is a little bit of a catch-22 that needs to be resolved. Mm -hmm. uh, I land on the side of trying to find a solution rather than saying no, but mm -hmm. there could be a reasonable philosophical argument to say no, and uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't know of it, but there could be one. I would <laughs> not say that there isn't one. Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's multiple interests at play here and multiple perspectives to take into consideration. Like you mentioned, there there might be this part of this discussion is a philosophical discussion. Part of the discussion is, you know, motivated by economic interests. Part of it's motivated by clinician interests, like we want what's best for a patient, right? And then, um, so there's different, there's certainly different interests at play. And I think that that is at least to me, one of the more interesting things about this whole, uh, this whole field, but I feel like that would be a whole separate conversation to have. <laughs> and, and you probably need an ethicist on board to have that conversation. Yes. Um, but as far as the medicine and the technologies, getting back to back on track, <laughs> um, how can we ensure that these technologies are both accessible and beneficial to a wide range of patients and that we're not excluding you know, uh, underserved populations from accessing these technologies and benefits? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to give a very non-traditional answer to that. Uh, ask about the cost of these technologies. Okay, what are the cost of AI healthcare Ask about the affordability. Um, because, and I'll use an analogy, I mean, you know, smartphones came out and there was only one sort of game in town, which was Apple at one point in time. And then uh, some smart people came together and launched the Android operating system. Uh, and now smartphones are ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. But that happened because an open source or semi-open source community came together and created this alternative, which is kind of equally good, if not perfect, as, uh, as an iPhone's uh, iOS. Mm -hmm. uh, but it dramatically reduced the cost of the device and, and of uh, uh, using a smartphone. So for any AI solution, I would ask the question, how much does it cost to use? Because if it can be made cheap and affordable, it will automatically spread. And as more people spread it, it becomes easier to study its impact and ensure it works for diverse populations and so on. So it's a bit counterintuitive, but focusing on cost and making it affordable is kind of a very fast path to get to the diversity and uh, other goals of accessibility we might want to have for a technology. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, like you said, kind of just summarizing, removing those economic barriers is essentially opens the floodgates um, in terms of access. Um, access is the single most important thing uh, that if you don't have it, it creates discrimination. Right. <laughs> yeah, the haves and the have-nots. Um, do, you, do you see in the community, in the community of AI and this, the development of this technology, specifically towards you know applications and healthcare delivery, do you sense that it's going in that direction in terms of kind of what you described with you know the ubiquity ubiquity of smartphones, how it was an open source technology? 
Not yet, not yet. So that's something I would encourage every MD student to pay attention to, that as you get exposed to these AI gizmos, so to speak, hmm. ask the question about who pays, how much, when, and why. Mm-hmm. And if they can't answer these four questions, you know, and I'll repeat them, who pays, how much, when, and why? Yeah. If you can't answer these four questions, I would be extremely suspicious of whatever piece of technology it might be. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's a fair question. But considering I think a lot of people, you know, now going into healthcare, we end up working for the hospital for the, you know, we don't end up working for ourselves in most cases. And so how do we, if we're not in a position to make those decisions as to like what technologies we bring into our practice, right? How do we then ensure that we're bringing the right technologies in? Well, by, by procurement of these technologies is always done by user committees. Get yourself on those committees, ask these questions. And when the answers are, you know, goofy or somehow murky, Mm-hmm. Uh, don't use those technologies. Okay. That no, yeah, I, I didn't know they had such committees, but that's that's great to know. <laughs> so pretty much everything that happens requires a, a, a what's called an RFP, and where uh, multiple stakeholders will get together to make the decision, like what mm-hmm. is the real need, uh, and all of those things get factored in in the decision of what to procure. Gotcha. It's it's yeah. way more democratic than you, you and than it appears from the outside. Yeah, I think I yeah from the outside looking in, it's healthcare is this very nebulous, very you know it's it's very daunting to kind of step into that world and and learn, um you know the ins and outs of it. But um, that's that's reassuring that you know there is an opportunity you, even if you don't start your own practice to be involved at that level. Um, you know, not only on the day-to-day patient interactions, but also on a more systemic level of decision-making. So what advice would you give to practicing medical professionals and as well as medical students who are interested in incorporating AI into their practice or research? Um, Spend some time learning how these technologies work. Uh, you know, you do not want to get caught in a situation where somebody else is making the decisions about what to build, how to build, and all of that for you. So you have to lean in, you have to engage. Right. And the other thing I would say is also a little bit counterintuitive. Lobby your curriculum directors to drop something so you have the time to learn this new stuff. Mm-hmm. There's so many things in medical curriculum that can relatively safely be cut out (laughs) Um, and uh, make place for the things that are going to affect the way we conduct the profession for many decades to come. Right. Yeah, that's very practical advice. And I feel like if only those curriculum directors would listen, (laughs) because, yeah, I, I, I we'll sit there and question why I'm learning certain things, but um, especially as like the field of medicine is changing and shifting. I think that, yeah, we spend a little too much time on certain things that are not even 
in our purview anymore, you know, not in our job description, so to speak. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I mean, those decisions are beyond me, but I, 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 I think it's, I think it's good that you're urging our listeners to do that, um, to, to take back ownership over our own education, right? Um, instead of being passive, passive participants in this very overwhelming medical education system. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, as, as the cliche goes, you stand for what you allow to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do have one final question for you. You were quoted in one of your previous interviews saying that whenever there's chaos, there's opportunity. How do you suggest medical professionals and medical students seek or create opportunities in the sometimes chaotic world of healthcare? By asking questions. Um, whenever there's chaos, it means th you know people who had their incentives set a certain way are finding them changing very rapidly. As new entrants into the profession, med students don't really have a vested interest in anything yet. And so ask seemingly naive questions. Uh, you know, who pays for this? Why do they pay for it? How much? Uh, why am I studying this, uh, this uh, particular subject matter? What can you do to create space for this new things that I'm, I need to learn? Um, ask a lot of why questions. And if the answers don't make sense, go ask the same question to multiple stakeholders. The administrators, the insurers, your professors, patients, nurses, physical therapists, and triangulate like on things people agree out of where new opportunities might lie. And very few people have the time and the luxury of being able to do the footwork of polling multiple stakeholders which is something that med students can do because you're literally running around the health system in third and fourth years. Yeah. Yeah, that that's that's actually great insight because I well, I, I start rotations in just under 2 months and you know, it's overwhelming, but like you said, this is an opportunity to really understand the dynamics and more so learn kind of I mean, I'm sure there's going to be gaps and holes and kind of trying to figure out how I fit into that um, will be a challenge. But but I appreciate that advice because I think that a lot of us are struggling to figure out exactly where we fit in. And so we kind of try to fit into the molds that are created for us. Um, but that won't necessarily get us very far. Um, especially as the world changes day by day. I think it's important to, like you said, never stop asking questions and never be sh too shy, too scared, or too in, you know, never lose that curiosity to stop asking why. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, be polite, but ask hard <laughs> questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Don't forget that part. For sure, be polite and be, you know, there's a time and place for everything, of course. Um, but yeah, no, that's great advice, I think, especially for medical students that are, um, you know, stepping into this new world, either as, you know, step, me stepping into rotations next month or, you know, new residents stepping into their roles as, you know, now no longer students, but now practitioners. Um, yeah, 
I think that there's a lot of opportunity there for sure. Um, but I have enjoyed this conversation so much. I'm so sad it has to end. I feel like we could talk about these technologies for a long time, especially considering all of the things we discussed today. I think there's so much more. You can take this in a hundred different directions. Um, but I hope that, you know, what we learned today at least inspires us to take that next step and <laughs> teach ourselves a little bit more you know go read up on some of these technologies learn how they actually work um see what opportunities there are to get involved because it doesn't seem like it's going away anytime soon so <laughs> any final word for our listeners dr shah um don't believe everything from the media <laughs> i love that <laughs> <laughs> I second that. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and 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 all of your expertise that you shared with us today. I I learned so much and I'm sure our listeners did as well. Um again, thank you for being here and we will be sure to follow your work and see what happens in the interesting and crazy world of AI in the near future. It was a pleasure to be here and all the best. Thank you.